0: Tunes App Store, BlackBerry App World or Android market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk radio network For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, Please visit worldtalkradio.com, the World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1866, Union veteran W.F.G. Shanks wrote in his book, Personal Recollections of Distinguished Generals, there are thousands of people in the East who do not know aught of the geographical positions of Western battlefields. While today there are millions of people who don't know much about the Civil War in the West, or don't even know that the West in Civil War speak means everything east of the Trans-Mississippi, up to the mountains or the Georgia coast, Of course, none of them are listening to this show, but for those who are, we're going to spend the next hour exploring the theater where the war was decided. We'll be talking with Professor Earl J. Hess, author of The Civil War in the West, Victory and Defeat from the Appalachians to the Mississippi. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you on a Friday afternoon, as always, in April 2012, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, not Eastern Carolina University. If you're applying to graduate school or for a job here and your application letter calls us Eastern Carolina, that's strike one and possibly two and three. So we are East Carolina University. Uh, but I am not speaking for East Carolina University or its history department, its College of Arts and Sciences, uh, or whatever reorganized body uh, I may find myself belonging to as the college moves forward i 'll only speak for myself, my guests will do the same. I mentioned this reorganization because the uh, the college the university has been undergoing a prioritization review for the past oh ten months or so uh, to the great detriment to the morale of the faculty and the the consumption of time and Uh, all with the idea of producing some document that will show how we can reorganize and save the taxpayers' money. We've spent a huge amount of money doing this, Uh, doubtful that much will come of it, but some people may lose their jobs. It's not a pleasant prospect. And I mention it uh, to you listening today only because the committee in charge has hit upon the habit of releasing its documents uh, when they have a big document to release about what department's going next, uh, they do it Friday afternoons at 3 p.m., which coincidentally is the time this show comes on. And so as I look at my computer screen to see what uh, uh, Chad and the other uh, wizards at World Talk Radio are telling me through the little window that sends me visual messages, I cannot avoid seeing, notice new email from the committee, new notice this or that coming in also on my screen. So as we sit here, there's an unopened email on my screen that's revealing the fate of the uh, college, of the uh, history department, of everything else that I'll be able to open when the show is over. But will that stop me from going ahead with you today? Of course not. And actually, I'm exaggerating because I saw the, uh, the dean of the college at lunch and he said, he had advanced word. It, it, it's not fatal to anyone under his purview, which would include the history department. So I'm hoping that he's right about that. Uh, but if we can tie this to a civil war topic, the constant reorganization and reappointment of leaders and changing organizations, uh, sometimes it works. Some armies need to be reformed and reorganized until you finally get them to the state of the Army of uh, Tennessee or the... Uh, Army of the Tennessee or the Army of the Potomac by 1864, but uh, other times there's just not much you can do. You can shuffle the pieces all you want and nothing good comes of it. Um, Which way we go, we don't know. But here at Civil War Talk Radio, things go from strength to strength. Uh, We have a fine uh, book to discuss today, and next week it's commencement here at East Carolina University, uh, ECU, and then no no live show. I'll be wearing the pink dress, as my wife refers to my elegant um, crimson gown uh, for, for the, the occasion. And then we'll be back with a live show on May 11th. Larry Kreiser, author of Defeating Lee. It's a history of the Second Corps. of The Army of the Potomac will go from west back to the east. Upcoming after that, Thomas Sabotky on May 18th. Uh, Keith Erickson on... June 1st, no no show on the 25th, that's Memorial Day weekend, um, and for those uh, of a traveling nature, I will be speaking that weekend, or sometime close to it, let's look at the calendar here, um, uh, the 29th, uh, May 29th, I will be in the Detroit area at the Israel B. Richardson Civil War Roundtable uh, in Rochester, and if you're anywhere in the Midwest, Come on up to the Great Lakes State, uh, to the Pleasant Peninsula of Michigan, the Lower Peninsula, and I'd uh, be happy to meet any fans of the show there, any listeners. On June 8th, Mark Dunkelman will be talking with us about uh, marching with Sherman, and that'll get us pretty close to the end of the season. Uh, good shows coming up in the fall as well, including John Michael Priest talking about Antietam next September on the as we approach the 150th anniversary of that event. Uh, to find out about all these things, always check out www.impedimentsofwar.org, uh, maintained by Mark Gaffney. It's uh, back up to date. It's a busy time of year. Sometimes things take a day or two, but it's, it's all up there. Check it out. See what we're doing. Uh, donate, if you are so inclined, uh, $20 to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund and when publishers aren't good about it, like UNC Press is, uh, sending me a copy of today's book, I'll go out and buy it myself and read it and talk about it with you on the air. Or I'll buy the case of Diet Coke to drink while reading and talking on the air. Either way, it's, it's money well spent, but not tax deductible. I will, however, send you a copy of All for the Regiment, or Did Lincoln Own Slaves, or Maybe I'll just take a random book off my shelf, if if you prefer, and see see what that is. Um, well, enough about these many things. It's time to talk. Uh, Civil War with our guest today. He is Earl J. Hess. He is a professor at, uh, he is the uh, Stuart W. McColland uh, uh, Chair Holder in History at Lincoln Memorial University, Harriet, Tennessee. And uh, it is a pleasure to welcome him to the show. Dr. Hess, are you there?
2: I'm here, and uh, good afternoon, Jerry. Glad to be here. Uh,
1: glad to be here.
2: Uh, Earl, I don't think you and I have ever, If I think we may have met once actually in the lobby at the museum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On your campus? Yeah, that's uh, that, that's very possible, and I think we've been in touch by email, also perhaps, and by phone in the past.
1: That's true. We, we we've communicated before, and uh, I've, I've uh, known your work for a long time. So I'm very happy that we're able to get together on the show. Um, speaking of Lincoln Memorial University, I have, have to ask: uh, Is Charles Hubbard still there?
2: Oh, Charles Hubbard is still there and going strong. He's a He's a member of the history department now that he resigned as director of the Lincoln Museum. So he's been, mm-hmm. he's been doing quite a bit of teaching for us in the past. No, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, please please give Charlie my
1: best. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. I have not been in touch with him in a little while, but I'm uh, always glad to have him uh, hear how he's doing. He was on the show some years ago talking about uh, foreign relations
2: uh, yeah.
1: during the war,
2: and, as was uh, Tom Mackey, who I believe oh. directs the museum now. Yes, yes. He's uh, Tom Mackey is the director of the museum. That's good to know that he they, they both are on the program.
1: Yes, yeah. Uh, Tom, uh, Tom and I were on a panel at uh, North Carolina State last year, uh-huh. uh, talking about public history, and uh, always good to stay in, in touch with him as well. Uh, it's a small Civil War world as we travel around, I guess.
2: Yeah, that's one of the nice things about the Civil War community. I think
1: it, it is. It, it's it's always always fun. Well, I'm. Very much enjoyed this book and uh, uh, the Civil War in the West. Uh, you, you've you've written about uh, P. Ridge, about Union soldiers, about uh, the rifle musket, lots of things. Maybe we can touch on. Uh, but I got an email not too long ago from uh, uh, a listener pointing out that uh, a lot of the shows recently were on Eastern topics, and what about mm-hmm. the war in the West? And mm-hmm. this comes along at the right time. I'm. It tracks my own interest in, in, in the Civil War campaigns. So let me start by asking you what what drew your attention to the war in the West, or maybe I can ask a bigger question: what got
2: you interested in the Civil War?
1: If we go back before your academic career.
2: Oh gosh, you're asking me to go back an awful number of years. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I think I can track my interest in the Civil War when I was 16 years old, wow. and my family went on a trip with me. Of course, to uh, I was grew up in Missouri. Uh, but we, we went on a trip to Tennessee, and I, I just was very taken by the state of Tennessee and also taken by all the Civil War battlefields that were there. So I, I did an awful lot of reading, and that really was the beginning of everything, uh, the beginning of a lifelong career and a lifelong love of studying this this great and tragic war in all of its facets. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it has made my life, of course, incredibly rich uh, in an intellectual and, and spiritual sense, too, I think as well as providing a, a livelihood for me, that uh, I feel so fortunate that I can do what I love to do for a living. Uh, unfortunately, not everybody can say that, but uh, but I'm eternally grateful that I can say it.
1: Well, that, I think almost everybody in the field would share those sentiments.
2: Mm-hmm. That,
1: let me ask a, a question. I'm immediately deviating from all the questions about the book I wanted to ask, but something that has been on my mind lately and the sort of touch on what you just said about the war is the war is a tragic, uh, fascinating yet tragic event.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You and I you know, make our living reading about it, teaching about it, benefiting from it, making a living from it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some people. Uh, I don't want to point at the reenactor community or the. Simulation game community or any other activity, but but can you
2: have too much fun with the Civil War, given what it, mm-hmm. how tragic it really was? Well, so that, that's an interesting question, and I, you know, I, I've heard comments like that, like you, you know, this is an awful event, and so why are why are people so fascinated by it, mm-hmm. and why are they making money out of it? Well, you know, uh, to begin with, ninety nine percent of all Civil War historians don't do it to make money. And if, they, if that's their aim to do it, they're going to be disappointed pretty soon. I mean, yeah. Know, <laughs> and, and, and you know, I, I make my living primarily by by teaching at my university, Lincoln Memorial University, and and I teach a Civil War class only once every two or three years. Most of the mm-hmm. rest of the time, I'm teaching other history courses. Well, you know, I I, I think it depends entirely on how you deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you 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 have to recognize and be sensitive. The uh, tragic side of what you're what you're studying. Once in a while, sometimes my understanding and feeling about what I'm studying kind of reaches a point where I also feel just kind of a little depressed by it, um, because you know part of uh, an awful lot of what military historians do is study how people are, are destroyed on the battlefield or how they are they are maimed for life, or how they are psychologically traumatized in some cases. But also it's a story of how people endure all that and survive it and and make maybe a better life for themselves and for their country after all the suffering is over. So there is a redemptive kind of element in this whole study, in, in, in this story of the Civil War that I find fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm. I've,
2: I've always been interested in how people uh, deal with, uh, challenge and how they deal with um, uh, serious challenges through their life, and you know the, the human element in history, the human drama of history is always what has what has captivated me, and and really warfare uh, brings all that home to people in a very condensed and intense way, and I guess that's why I'm a military historian, not because I'm a militarist, but because I'm a, I'm a historian who's interested in the history of people. And you can really understand people an awful lot when you see them go through the the prism of combat on battlefields. And the Civil War is a particularly interesting example of that sort of thing happening because it's Americans versus Americans. And it's, it's a war that took place right here at home, a few miles from the homes of many people who are alive today. Civil War battles are all over the South. Um, so it's, it, it's really an important part of modern America's life. I've, I've always been really grateful and impressed by the enormous number of Americans today who are interested in the war and who take it seriously and who I think understand these things that I've been talking about. That is not just uh, a story of cardboard figures doing heroic things. It's a story of people who have fears. And who have uh, desires, and who have tragedies, and who has tr- who has triumphs also. And so, it, it's. I mean, gosh, if you like history, I don't understand how you can not at least be a little interested in warfare, because you know that's to to me that kind of is is at the heart of what makes history interesting.
1: Well, it, it is. It, if you look at the, the soldiers themselves, when they. Come to write their memoirs or mm-hmm. regimental histories or other things late, later in their lives. They mm-hmm. those, those four years of, of warfare are what they remember by far. Is, is the most dramatic and important moments of their lives. I, that's, mm-hmm. And if they thought it was so important, then then uh, it, for for a historian today to say it's not important is, is, is not really crediting the source appropriately. Uh, so so I certainly agree with you. I. To, I thought that was a, a really eloquent answer and, and, and helps, helped me sort of frame some thoughts I've been thinking about this. Uh, uh, well, did, you I, make an interesting point that, that almost everybody who studies the war, it, it, I think of all historians I know, um, almost none of them are would, military historians that I know would cons- be considered militarists. Uh, if, yeah. if anything, long exposure to this phenomenon uh, uh, lead you to to not want it to, to be engaged
2: in. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree. And, uh, you know, warfare sometimes, I think, just from a philosophical standpoint and a, maybe a political standpoint, is certainly necessary now and then. Uh, but it always should be considered the last resort if mm-hmm. uh, not everything else fails to accomplish something good in the world. And um, so, yeah, in the, in that sense, uh, it, it, it's a fascinating story. I've... I'm also uh, just kind of interested in the number of academic Civil War historians around today who are not military historians, and I, I would say that probably the majority of them uh, fall into that category, and there's nothing wrong with that. They they may be historians of women in the 1860s or historians of the African-American experience or historians of culture or historians of, of social aspects, but an awful lot of them um, are not are not focused on the military experience of the Civil War. And I looked at the. Uh, I just saw the the program for the
1: Society of Civil War Historians meeting in June mm-hmm. in, in Louisville, and that struck me that I don't think one out of twenty of the presentations could be considered a military presentation.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it, it's it's what, what what back in the eighties people wanted to talk about the new military history. Yeah, I guess now it's coming to roost. <laughs> Are uh, we getting what we wanted back then? And again, I want to emphasize that all all of that is legitimate history, and all of that is legitimate civil war history. but I just I, I just kind of wonder and worry that we we don't reach a stage where we act as if combat and what happened on the battlefield was unimportant or just ancillary to other things that were happening off the battlefield as a way of determining and defining what the Civil War meant and was all about for everybody. Oh, and, and you know the election of eighteen sixty-four, Lincoln's reelection in mm-hmm. sixty-four. I always point to as a wonderful example of how combat intertwines with politics and with everything else to determine the fate of a country. That you know what happens on the battlefield certainly is not irrelevant to what was taking place in the eighteen sixties. In my argument, in my view, it was the uh, the, the the heart of the, of the experience of the Civil War. I absolutely would agree with that, and and.
1: The, there are, I think, the, the trend to to not talk about military history can is, is easily taken too far. Can easily be caricatured. As listeners to the show, mm-hmm. they've probably heard me say I, I, I once applied for a job in civil war history at a university I will not name, uh, and when when they hired someone else afterward, I asked uh, someone on the the faculty there said, you know, so you know, what did I do wrong or you know any feedback? And he said, well. Uh, some of the people liked you, but they thought you were too civil war. Mm -hmm. And for a civil war job, that didn't seem to me a disqualification, but it Mm -hmm. exactly was. They wanted someone who would do a sort of social or other kind of history that didn't really talk about armies or or soldiers. Well, we're going to talk about armies and soldiers more, but we're going to take a short break now and come back and talk about what happened in 1861 in the West and follow that through the end. Uh, But we'll take a short break right now, come back and talk more with Earl Hess, author of The Civil War in the West, Victory and Defeat from the Appalachians to the Mississippi. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding what about your business we've got a program that will help streamline your image management tune in to marketing matters hosted by yasmin anderson smith Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The World is Talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Earl J. Hess, author of The Civil War in the West Victory and Defeat from the Appalachians to the Mississippi. Uh, Earl, in this book about the war in the West, the uh, the overriding geographic feature, it seems to me that the, the one that you stress over and over again is the Mississippi River, the, the one that defines the the western boundary. And yeah, you know, we get used to start referring to the West, and we always we know what we mean. You know, Kentucky, Missouri, Mississippi, or not Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Miss, uh, uh, Mississippi. And uh, to to people outside the field, that's the middle of the country. The West starts at the mm-hmm. Mississippi, but uh, it ends there for us. Um, the, talk about the the Mississippi River. As as
2: is it fair to say, you see it as the key
1: geographical feature of
2: the war? Yeah, it was it was the key geographic feature of that whole section of the United States that we today call the Midwest, as you as you suggest. And, and it, the Mississippi held an enormously important uh, economic and cultural value to the people of the Northwest, especially the area of the upper Mississippi Valley, stretching to, you know from Ohio through Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Iowa, that whole general area up there. Um, I, I talk a great deal in the early part of the book about that cultural value that those Northwesterners, as they often were called. Uh, held, held the Mississippi dear to their heart. After all, we had, we had uh, you know, acquired the Louisiana Territory from France in 1803, primarily not to buy all this land, but primarily to secure the navigation of the Mississippi River for uh, American uh, producers uh, to sell their agricultural produce down to New Orleans and from there out to international markets. And, you know, the Mississippi was the primary uh, avenue uh... for most of that time from eighteen three to eighteen sixty one for economic uh, exportation of northwestern agricultural products and and a lot of northwesterners in eighteen sixty one still thought that was important and when the the south seceded you know one of the first acts that took place during the the secession winter was that governor Pettus of mississippi set up some confederate artillery on the on the bluff at vicksburg in january of eighteen sixty one and threatened to fire on any northern ships that came down the Mississippi. A lot of Northwesterners saw this this as as something very negative and something they would have to deal with in the future if the CSA actually achieved its independence. They didn't want a foreign government, in other words, in control of the lower Mississippi River Valley and in control of New Orleans for economic purposes. And a lot of people, especially William T. Sherman, I mean, I was fascinated in doing this research to see how keenly Sherman was aware of this issue. He spoke from the very beginning of the war to the very end of it about the significance of the Mississippi River, not just in economics but in cultural terms. He saw the Mississippi and its whole drainage area as being the the heart of America. And the future of America, this is where America is going, of course, jump jumpstart going west uh, after, uh, in the 1860s and 70s, and that's where the empire of America is really going to be felt. Sherman was a, a great trumpeter of the significance of the West in terms of American culture. And he uh, he really spoke an awful lot in his letters about the need to do this on a repeated basis. He pointed out that, you know, if the Confederacy gets its independence, even if it succeeds in say, in offering assurances to the North that they will not interfere with the navigation, it's still like a stranglehold on the North that the, that the, an independent Confederate government can always use in the future to coerce the North. And Sherman and many people in the Northwest said, this this is impossible, we can't accept it. I really think that even if not for Fort Sumter, even if there wasn't any consensus across the whole north to make war on the south and destroy the confederacy I I tend to think that the northwestern states alone would have argued that we need to go to war uh, to destroy the confederacy if for nothing else than to reopen the navigation of the Mississippi River it was an extremely vibrant war objective of that particular section of the country not so strongly felt in the northeast uh, because they had far less direct interest in it, but very strongly felt in the Northwest. I also found it fascinating that once that, that navigation is secure, once Vicksburg falls on July Fourth, 1863, uh, Major General Stephen Hurlbut, who is, is commands occupation forces in Memphis, basically offers to, uh, wants to resign from the Army because he basically thinks the war is over, and a lot of people felt the same way. That's kind of funny if you think about it from hindsight, knowing that there's two more years of terribly bloody fighting to go. But a lot of a lot of Northwesterners thought that we've done what we set out to do as soon as Vicksburg is in Union hands. Well, it, but before the war, you know, through the whole
1: decade of the 1850s, the trade pattern is shifting, where the railroads are now connecting Chicago and Cincinnati with the eastern seaboard. That is true, and and, and the
2: Mississippi is losing its relative share of mm-hmm. Northwestern trade, isn't it? That's, that's absolutely true. And, and the stats that we have document that. I, I mentioned that also. And mm-hmm. some commentators were at least vaguely aware of this. I think Abraham Lincoln was aware of it. Uh, but he nevertheless pointed out in one of his letters that it really makes no, no difference, that Northern, Northwesterners don't want to accept any kind of limitation on their ability to succeed economically and build a prosperous life for themselves and for their country. Even if the Mississippi is less important in 1861 than it was in 1851, Lincoln felt that even, even a slight limitation on all of their options is, is not going to be acceptable to them. And, and I really think that an awful lot of Northwesterners weren't even aware of, mm-hmm. of this ship, uh, this ship shifting of relative economic significance away from river commerce southward toward rail commerce from west to east. And I guess another issue is to. Uh, there's an all, awful lot of cultural significance attached to this issue. When when Sherman was talking about the significance of the Mississippi, he not only was talking about economic significance, but really cultural significance. The, the Mississippi as a symbol of national greatness, and he he looked upon St. Louis especially as the coming city uh, of America. And I guess that is part of the reason why, in the 1870s, after the Civil War was over, John Logan. That uh, very successful Union General in the Civil War from southern Illinois introduced a bill in Congress in the early 1870s to try to move the national capital away from Washington, D.C. to St. Louis to kind of keep pace with the the expansion of the country westward and get away from the old defunct eastern seaboard, in his view, and place the capital where it can have a a closer contact with the coming empire of the American nation.
1: Well, it's it, uh, it, it's interesting how that ties in. I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking. On the one hand, uh, uh, last week on the show, Mark Neely was talking about his, his book on the Constitution and, and Lincoln's involvement in the Effie Afton case uh, before when he was a lawyer before the war, which essentially was Steamboat versus Railroad on the Mississippi, and Lincoln was hired by the railroad, and 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 that very question came up. And uh, then Adam Aronson was on a few weeks ago who has a fascinating new book on St. Louis in the war. And there was so much in the last year in St. Louis and Missouri in the Civil War that seems to be uh, the center of gravity for, for current study, that it represents so much. Uh, you know, the Mississippi, as you say, is a cultural symbol mm-hmm. uh, as well as a military one. Well, that ties in with the beginning of the war in the West because... Uh, Kentucky, of course, does not secede, but does not contribute to the Union war effort at first, and neither side wants to anger uh, Kentuckians. They both want them the support of Kentucky, mm-hmm. but th- it's the Mississippi that that forces uh, forces both sides' hands eventually.
2: Yeah, I, 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 especially for the north northwest, uh, you can see evidence on the Confederate side that Confederate authorities are certainly aware of this northern desire to reopen the navigation. That's why they were pretty careful about trying to offer uh, promises not to interfere. I think the Confederate, some of the first laws that the Confederate government in Montgomery, Alabama, passed in uh, February of 62 were laws that were designed to uh, create a system of free trade between the northern uh, country and the, the new southern Confederacy along the waterways. And, and, and offering promises not to close or interfere with that navigation. But, of course, it didn't have an effect. Uh, Northern, Northerners, especially Northwesterners, still wanted to do that. Uh, and, and once Fort Sumter comes, a, comes about, of course, Northwesterners are fighting to preserve the Union, but they have this very special issue here. Now, another, another area in which I think the Mississippi kind of plays a huge role in the Civil War, I, I, I argue in my book that in terms of military movements, that the northerners did a much better job of utilizing available technology, especially uh, gunboat technology and steamboat technology, as well as rail technology, too, for that matter, to uh, to overcome the biggest problem of the Western War, and that is geography and the huge geographic expanse of the Confederacy west of the Appalachians and east of the Mississippi River. Uh, that whole territory, I mean, the, the states of Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Georgia—you put that all together it's the size, you know, of several European nations. And it's—it's a—it's an area that no American nation, American army, before 1861, had the task of moving huge numbers of troops through this kind of gigantic expanse of territory. You have to utilize the technology available. I argue that the Northerners did a better job of doing that. They did a better job of using available technology to penetrate that big geographic expanse and subdue it than the Confederate side did of using the available technology to themselves to defend the area okay. and so and William Hardy, I think in his in his Stone's River Battle Report, if I remember correctly, talks about how whenever it comes to issues of technology or technical expertise, the Yankees are superior. He thought that the Confederates were better fighters and were better at spirit, combat spirit and etc., and they had more heart, but he thought that the Yankees were, of course, better at all these technical issues, whether it's artillery or whether it's steamboats or railroad and et cetera. And, and I argue that that's a, a key element in the enormous success Northern armies had of penetrating this huge expanse of Western Confederate territory and subduing it, a faster then the huge Union Army in Virginia was able to go a much shorter distance with less geographic difficulties in front of them to try to capture Richmond and subdue Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And I, to a degree, I think the Confederates, of course, the Confederates suffered shortages of troops. They sh- suffered shortages of food and etc. But one argument I make is that that can't explain by itself why the Confederates lost the war in the West. I think there's an awful lot of evidence uh, to suggest that they just did a much less effective job of administering what resources they had, utilizing it, keeping their railroads and, uh, intact and working well. And a lot of Confederates themselves recognized that and complained about it, too. So it's uh, and uh, another issue, I think, about the Western War. I, I found it fascinating that especially the Union soldiers in Grant's and Sherman's Army of the Tennessee, the army that was primarily responsible for, for clearing much of the Mississippi River Valley, developed an enormously self-confident morale advantage over their Confederate opponents that began with Shiloh, a battle they, they nearly lost, but in the end, of course, uh, were successful at turning into a victory. And they were enormously self-confident because of their success in the Vicksburg campaign and the clearing of the, of the Mississippi River.
1: You point that out.
2: There's a couple incidents where you mentioned that that, that reminds me
1: of I think it's Michael Adams' book from you know 20 or 30 years ago, uh, "Our Masters, the Rebels," where the Army of the Potomac gets an inferiority complex from day one, and the Westerners never do. And you point out there's often conflict within the Union armies between Western troops and eastern units that have been shipped out to the west Mm -hmm. uh, because they don't see it the same way.
2: Yeah, Uh, There's an awful lot of uh, persistence of regionalism in America in the 1860s. Westerners thought that they were different from Easterners. Northwesterners thought they were different from Southwesterners. Northerners Mm -hmm. in general thought they were different from Southerners. Everybody thought they were different from somebody else because most Americans in the 1860s lived a a fairly uh, closed-in life in which they didn't do, most of them anyway, didn't do an awful lot of traveling and not terribly high levels of education and exposure to Mm -hmm. uh, other parts of the country. So uh, there's almost kind of a natural tendency whenever uh, New England troops come into contact with troops from Wisconsin, for example, or troops from Missouri to uh, automatically think that they're, they're culturally different from each other. And sometimes, oh gosh, you know, when you, when you have some of these very self-confident members of the Army of the Tennessee, uh, the 13th Corps, after Vicksburg, is sent down to the lower Mississippi to the Department of the Gulf to help Nathaniel Banks people who are largely New England troops. And uh, these 13th Corps people just bragged to high heaven about all their accomplishments and compared them unfavorably with the relatively meager accomplishments of banks, people in the Department of the South. So there was this constant fighting, constant argument, fist fights between Union soldiers over things like this. I, I found it pretty fascinating. And uh, it really shows that there's varied levels of morale among. All union units across the board, dependent on their experiences, their level of success, et cetera, et cetera. They did. In, in contrast, I mean, did you see the
1: same thing within the South? Troops uh, from Mississippi you know, yeah. having different relation uh, or different opinion of, say, Longstreet's uh, easterners when they they come east in eighteen sixty three, or they come west in eighteen sixty three.
2: It's a very good question, and I didn't find nearly as much in why that is so. I mean, I found a, a few sources, a few personal accounts by Confederate soldiers talking about differences between um, Eastern Confederates and Western Confederates. Um, there, are, there are a small handful of accounts coming from the Texas Brigade and Longstreet's command, for example, Mm-hmm. In which they uh, they talk either derogatorily about the Western Union troops at Chickamauga, who they defeated, versus, for example, Burnside's men at Knoxville in the Knoxville campaign of November of in December of sixty three, where where the Yankees did a, uh, the Western Yankees did a very good job of standing up to Lee's hardened veterans and holding that town. But, you know, it, the, there isn't nearly as much on the Confederate side as there is on the Union side, and I honestly don't know the reason for that. Part of it, I guess, is you, you know you have no, more Northern soldiers, but that regional uh, self-consciousness seems to have been much more high in the Northern armies than in the Confederate armies for some reason. And it, it, if anything, you would expect it to be the opposite, perhaps, because everyone talks about, you know, Southern regionalism being so mm-hmm. strong. But I... I I, 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 I share that, that impression I, I, I'm idea. curious about it too but I've, I've seen the same thing
1: mm-hmm. well let, let's take another short break and come back and talk about uh, some of the issues behind the lines as the north moves south which, uh, which you talk about in, in this book the book we're talking about today is The Civil War in the West Victory and Defeat from the Appalachians to the Mississippi we're talking with its author Earl J. Hess I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio
0: Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to listen and talk. Hi, this is Rochelle and Jeff from Travel Hub Radio with another Travel Hub tip. You're late for your flight and there is a long line at the security checkpoint. What can you do as a traveler to improve time and efficiency and make your flight quickly? One idea is to take everything out of your pockets, such as sunglasses, cell phones, PDAs, pagers, and other metal and electronic objects. Put them in an easily accessible pocket
1: on your carry-on luggage. If security asks you to display or operate these items, they're right there.
0: Plus, you won't hold up the line when you have to do the walk. A metal belt buckle or a wristwatch is usually not a problem, but be aware of them and ready to remove them quickly if needed. Wear comfortable shoes that can be quickly slipped off and on if you are asked to remove them. Most of all, if the security personnel give you specific directions or ask you a question, don't argue. Just comply and cooperate. It's not personal. They're just doing their job. For traveling tips and much more, make sure you tune into Travel Hub Radio or listen to the show archives and podcast right here on World Talk Radio and at TravelHubRadio.com. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Earl Hess, who's the author of The Civil War in the West, Victory and Defeat from the Appalachians to the Mississippi, Uh, his most recent among many books, but the one we're discussing today. And we've been talking about the importance of the Mississippi River, the uh, Union's successful use of technology to uh, to conquer the vast distances of the Western theater, uh, using railroads and steamboats to supply huge armies over uh, enormous areas. And, uh Earl, one of the things that, that comes out repeatedly in your book is the difficulty of administering the areas that the Union uh takes over, uh, starting with Tennessee, uh, the state of Tennessee in 1862, and uh working south and also working north from New Orleans in 1862. Uh, there's a huge amount of guerrilla resistance everywhere the Union armies go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know Daniel Sutherland's book uh, that, that won the, the 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 award last year, uh, the Civil War Book Award, essentially argues that that the guerrilla war was not really a sideshow that gets that usual chapter in every survey, uh, then back to the main campaigns, but that it, it was the that it was much bigger. It, it really was the war. And reading your book the The omnipresence of guerrilla warfare everywhere uh, made me think that, that Sutherland is onto something.
2: Uh, how, how do you see that? Well, I, I like Dan Sutherland's book a lot because it's the first effort to really write a true, full history of guerrilla activity in the Civil War, and it's enormously valuable in that respect. And I like it a great deal. I, I don't, I honestly don't necessarily buy his argument that guerrilla activity was the significant key to turning the war uh, from a comparatively uh, limited conflict into a total war, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not not sure that he's really made that uh, or proven that case. And and it's absolutely true what you said, that uh, guerrilla activity springs up almost immediately when Union troops enter the contested territory. It persists, and it goes on to the end of the war, even past the Civil War uh in some ways. Um, in some areas it's incredibly intense and awful. You mentioned uh Missouri, I think earlier in the hour mm-hmm. about being a focal point of studies. That of course has always been the the poster child Missouri has of uh the tragedy of guerrilla activity. It was all guerrilla activity was very very bad and even in Kentucky, another you know, border state in, in in the latter part of the Civil War, ironically enough. And in some parts of Tennessee it was incredibly bad and uh, in other parts not. And my view of it, however, is that it's extremely sporadic. It waxes and wanes in different parts. It occurs in some areas. It doesn't occur in other areas. It's difficult for the occupiers to gain control of it or to do something about it. These are issues that, of course, are, are as everyone can easily recognize, very relevant to uh, today's mm-hmm. activities in the, around the world in terms of what the U.S. Army has to deal with. In the Civil War, the, the Federal Army sometimes was able to Mount really intense efforts to target these uh, guerrilla-infested regions and knock the guerrillas back on their feet and put them on the defensive, disperse them at least temporarily. They never, I think, found a military solution, interestingly enough, to guerrilla warfare in the Civil War. And really, more than anything, that I, I guess the key that kind of ended the guerrilla fighting more decisively than anything else was Lee's surrender. That took the starch not only out of organized Confederate units, but took the starch out of an awful lot of guerrilla bands. Then the Federal Army in April of 65, began to offer so-called Appomattox terms even to guerrilla groups, Hmm. who, of course, were not recognized as real soldiers, but nevertheless, just to get them to put their guns down and become peaceful citizens again, they did offer those very generous terms to them, and a lot of guerrilla uh, groups took them up on that and gave up and made formal surrenders, and others, of course, didn't do that. I, uh, You know, there's no doubt that in some cases guerrilla attacks on Union troops did inspire hatred and did inspire their friends to burn houses and do this. I don't, however, see guerrilla activity as being the most important cause for that. The Union total war effort, in the sense of destroying Southern resources and et cetera, has at least half a dozen major causes behind it, and their varied causes and guerrilla activity or response to guerrilla attacks is only one of many, many different reasons why that that general policy gradually evolved over time. So that that's the only caveat I, I personally have about Dan Sutherland's fine book. Now, one aspect of guerrilla resistance that I wasn't familiar
1: with uh, till reading this was the sabotage and uh, of Steamboats, steamboat explosions.
2: Oh. Yeah.
1: Uh, you found a couple of those. I thought that was uh, a new wrinkle.
2: That that was a fascinating. Thing. The boat burners of the Mississippi. I like yeah. to call them. Yeah, uh, and uh, the the, the ev- I had never heard of this before doing research for this book, but it's the evidence is quite clear that the Confederate government was behind this. They literally did hire secret agents to set fire to uh, northern steamboats on the Mississippi to try to interfere economically as well as militarily with the northerners' uh, control of the Mississippi River and their attempt to use it for economic gains and for furthering military efforts. And, you know, it, we, these, these agents uh, acted secretly. They got on board, uh, at least one or two of them were suspected of disguising themselves as black laborers so that they could get on board these, these steamboats when they were uh, tied up at the levees. Of, of St. Louis and Memphis and other cities and setting fires and then getting away before they're caught. Uh, they destroyed, uh, uh, I guess, a couple of dozen or maybe more than that boats in this fashion. They were paid uh, handsome sums of cash by the Confederate government. A couple of them, I think, were caught. And others were, of course, suspected, and the, the Federals had to deal with that. It was a traumatic experience. But I, I also found it fascinating that in the final analysis, uh the, the boat burners accounted for I believe only eight or ten percent of all the boat losses in the whole Civil War and about forty five percent of the boat losses were caused by sheer accidents. Mm. It was not, it, it was it was pretty unsafe to ride steamboats in the eighteen sixties. That it it, yeah, was... had nothing to do with the Civil War, just because, you know, the um the engines were faulty or or as steamboat captains ran onto snags and mm-hmm. all all kinds of problems like that.
1: Well, the the uh, steamboats are also central to the cotton trade, and that's another theme that comes up in your book uh, a lot, is that as, as the North takes over Southern land, mm-hmm. the question is what happens to the cotton being grown there, which is very valuable. And it seems like there's a constant tension between the, the desire. B- both sides want trade to open, so the North can get cotton, the South can get gold or contraband. Both sides don't want it open for the opposite reasons.
2: Uh, and it's never really resolved. It's it, it, yeah, it's one of those problems like the guerrilla activity. Nobody came up with a, a real good solution for it. And you know, you know, another thing I found fascinating was that the Confederate reaction in '62 in the West, when the when the federal army cracked open the Confederate defense line at Fort Donelson and Fort Henry and dived deep into the CS territory and came up and down the Mississippi and. Uh, gained access to all of this rich cotton-growing area that the Confederates in, in, in the spring of 62 enacted a policy of burning as much cotton as they could possibly do within reach of union raiding parters, parties to prevent the Federals from obtaining it. And the they orders were issued, and local commanders tried their best to do that, and tens of thousands of bales of cotton were destroyed by the Confederate authorities. Uh, In in that sense, Uh, cotton becomes, as you suggest, it is a gold mine in the Civil War. An awful lot of money can be made from it. As soon as Union troops get into new territory of the Confederacy, there's a flood of speculators coming to try to buy cotton. And as you suggest, they they tend to want to use the Union Army through bribing local commanders to help them obtain it and to transport it to uh, Memphis or other places where they can sell it. And make a huge profit out of it. And it is a. Uh, Grant constantly tore his hair, hair, hair out. Sherman did uh, the same thing over this issue the interference with military operations, the corruption, the demoralization, and et cetera, et cetera, for, for the military establishment when all this sort of thing happened. Um, you try to regulate it. I mean, the, the, there were various efforts to try to accomplish this, none of them worked terribly well. Um, basically by the middle of the war, Grant and Sherman had come in their dispatches to argue that we just need to cut cut trade completely off in some areas and don't let any of it take place until we whip the South and destroy the Confederacy. Then you can resume commerce as you want to. But, of course, the political authorities couldn't do that. There's too much pressure on them. And, you know, you have to see from their perspective, too, uh, there is a a demand for this uh, white gold in northeastern Mm -hmm. textile mills and in British textile mills, and uh, there's a legitimate commercial need going on here where you have to engage in it to a limited degree, at least even during wartime and sometimes even in war zones, in order to satisfy everybody. But it, it means that northern military commanders are constantly having to deal with these issues one of the things I, I found fascinating in my research for this book is how relatively little time is spent by Grant and Sherman actually working out ways to defeat Confederate armies. Ninety percent of their time is spent with having to deal with uh, commercial uh, issues, having to deal with transportation and supply, having to deal with thousands of local civilians who troop into their headquarters at Memphis at wanting a million different things from them. So, you know, they have to do an awful lot of this sort of this sort of work to deal with occupation duty. work uh, 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 little so uh, spent on really fighting
1: the war. It's uh, that, true of so many jobs where uh, they look glamorous from the outside, but it's all about administration mm. uh, from the inside. That's what you spend your time doing. The uh, uh, One administrator you talk about is Benjamin Butler in New Orleans, who certainly you know, lined his pockets sufficiently well while doing that, but uh, you present him as actually doing a a pretty good job running the city for the benefit of its residents, even if they weren't happy with his pro-union views.
2: Yeah. Well, he's a fascinating character, and I he got, he gets he get got an awful lot of high marks from his contemporaries for being a good military administrator, and I would agree with them. I think he did a fantastic job uh, in a tumultuous. but New Orleans was the biggest city in the Confederacy, one hundred and seventy thousand population, if I remember correctly, and a and a multi varied, multicultural society also that basically gave up almost without a fight to union occupation so for the first few months of butler's residency as the new union authority there uh, there was a lot of rebellious spirit among an awful lot of new orleans residents and they tested butler enormously and he he did a fantastic job of of uh, dealing with those challenges in a way to kind of assert union authority and partly that was he a guy named Mumford, who had uh, defiantly raised uh, or tore down, I think, the Union flag from the Mint building. And Butler had him arrested and tried and executed him as, as a symbol. You know, That, that so, certainly got, got people's, people's attention there. People's We're, attention. We're running shockingly close to the end of our
1: show already, but let me ask you uh, sort of the $64 question. Could the war in the West have come out differently? Was there anything the Confederacy could have done in your
2: judgment? to bring about a different result okay that is the sixty four thousand dollar question isn't it, it it's well big one. i i i think I think there is, and uh, obviously the obvious thing is that they have taken some troops away from Lee and sent them out to the west that would have helped the westerners but then what would Lee be doing uh, on the other hand too um, I think Albert Sidney Johnston who was the uh uh, the controller of Confederate destinies in 61 and 62 until his death at Shiloh made some serious mistakes in terms of disposing of his forces in uh, pretty static defensive positions rather than making them into more mobile columns that could strike at Union movements as soon as they were detected. He basically just kind of sat back and wait, waited for the Federals to make their move and then responded to them, giving up strategic, the strategic initiative. And that went on after his death. I mean, the, the, Joe Johnston did that in Mississippi as well. Right. You, you do have some Confederate commanders in the West, unlikely, who seem to be determined never to take a single risk uh, for any reason. And Joe Johnson, of course, is a perfect—he's a wonderful administrator, uh, good in terms of creating morale among his troops, but he was determined— never to risk anything. And, um, you know, you can you can really make a, an argument that uh, that wasn't the right thing to do. The Confederates, the Confederates, I think, needed to be on the defensive, but they also had to conduct an active defensive, like Lee was doing in Virginia. And Western Confederate commanders rarely did that. I think Braxton Bragg came close to doing that in the Stones River campaign. He really punished Rosecrans' Ar- uh, Union mm-hmm. army at Stones River and late december sixty-two early january sixty-three even though he had to retreat he inflicted tremendous casualties and really a psychological <laughs> and, blow and, and, and even when he went before. into kentucky and in september and mm-hmm. in
1: october sixty-two at least he's taking the war out of the south briefly
2: exactly uh, uh, Bragg deserves a lot more credit than he's ever been given by historians i think i think he 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 was the only western confederate commander other than hood uh, to really try to follow that Lee model of an active, aggressive, defensive policy. And of course, Hood's, Hood's attempt to do that in the Atlantic campaign, of course, was an utter failure. Bragg's attempt to do it, I think, was, uh, was, a close, was closer to success than people have a tendency to give him credit for.
1: Well, Earl, alas, we really are out of time now, but on that provocative note, readers want to find out uh, who is this who says something good about Braxton Bragg. Uh, And the way to find out is to get yourself a copy of The Civil War in the West, Victory and Defeat, From the Appalachians to the Mississippi. Uh, And if you like that, there are numerous other uh, books that uh, our guest today has written. Uh, Earl, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for
2: being on the show. I enjoyed it very much, Jerry. Thank you.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.